Art Speaks, a program presented by the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. I am your host today, Anna Buchanan, but I am with one of our new regular hosts, Emily Jordan, curator of decorative and fine art here at William King Museum of Art. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you, Anna? Good. I'm good. Thank you for being with me. Of course. Um, we're very happy to have you here at William King. Um, I know I am. It's so much easier having two curators, so bless you for that. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining the team. Can you tell me where you're from? I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Did you did you grow up with a creative streak? in you? Yes, ever since I could hold a pen, and I know that's what most artists say, but I I learned to draw before I could do much else, so I've always been very creative, always in touch with that side of myself, and so I like to carry that over into my adulthood as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think, you said a lot of artists say that, but (laughs) I think, you know, it, being able to, that idea of being able to hold a crayon or pick up a pencil or what have you, um, you know, I think that's something that's so ingrained in us in childhood. So it's it's wonderful when you can carry that over into adulthood because I think a lot of times that gets lost. Absolutely. In yes. Um, is anyone else in your family interested in the arts or? Did you come to be the only one in your family that yearned for this this creative career? Yeah, so both my parents as well as my two siblings also grew up with an artistic bone in their body, but that manifested itself in music. So my parents went to school for music. My brother and sister have dabbled around in band and music theory and things like that, but I think I sort of flipped the, the train track the other way and went towards visual arts. So. We do have some things in common, but I would be the only visual artist of the family. Yeah. Were your were your parents supportive of that growing up? Absolutely, yeah. Um, they still have a little bit of visual artistic talent as well, so they tried to nurture that as much as possible, but there were you know, only so many things they could teach me, and I tried the musical path as well, and I was not very blessed in that aspect, so I think that they finally gave up and just threw me out into the visual art world instead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so where did you go to school? Um, So I just graduated from Vanderbilt University last spring, and before that I went to, you know, middle school, high school in Murfreesboro, which is right outside of Nashville, so Mm -hmm. born and raised. (laughs) What was your time like at Vanderbilt did you did you ever switch um your degree did you know did you always know you know I'm gonna go into art history I'm gonna go into the arts or what what did that look like so going to Vanderbilt was very interesting for those of you who know anything about Vanderbilt it's definitely a very medical heavy school so a lot of kids go there for pre-med or even pre-law we have a lot of pre-law students so Going into the arts at Vanderbilt was, I was kind of one of the oddballs out of the system. Um, I did initially, coming from high school, I wanted to study just purely studio art. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to go into making art. Um, But by the time I got to Vanderbilt, um, just because of the culture at the school, there weren't a lot of ways to become an artist. There were just a few classes you could take that were studio classes as an underclassman, and then those weren't necessarily pathways to become an artist after graduation. So I sort of stayed
steered more towards art history, which is something I've always loved as well. I took a couple of those classes in high school, so wasn't disappointing. I'm very happy that I did art history, but it was a little bit of a traje trajectory change in college. So would you say that you were an artist before you were an art historian? Yes, and that's what drove me towards art history too, because when you're a kid and a teenager learning art in your art classes, you know, most of the time your teacher probably tells you like, this is a technique that they developed in the Renaissance and we're making it with really cheap craft supplies here in the <laughs> 21st century. So you kind of get really interested in the history of what you are doing. And I just think I became a little bit more interested in that than the other artists around me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever bring an art historical context into your own work or using your knowledge of art history, did you, did you apply techniques that you learned, you know, through that art history practice into your own work? So I definitely try to be original when I make my own works and I mostly focus on oil painting, um, watercolors too, and then ink drawing. So obviously a lot of those are very historical. They have a lot of, um, history behind them and I try to develop my own style subject matter and that kind of thing but it is it is pretty easy to bring in influence that I have from studying art history and most of the time that's just styles and techniques that other artists used to use you know we study people like Caravaggio he's one of my favorites so I definitely use his light and dark contrast that he's so well known for um, during the Baroque period mm -hmm. and then one of my other favorite artists is Edward Hopper, and so I use a lot of his influence in my work, but it is kind of hard to just recreate all of those techniques using the materials we have and that most artists use in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I think that people, people think that if you go into the arts and, and you find that creative career that you yourself stop being an artist and I, you know that's absolutely not true all of us that work here are artists um, but during the day we, we work at an arts organization then at night I think a lot of us go home to our studios and continue to create so that's that's wonderful to hear about your art practice how do you think the arts differ as career choices for, for students and I know that that's kind of a loaded question. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great question. I think when you're young and you like coloring and using Crayola watercolors, your only option you think you have is just to grow up and be an artist. And you don't really know what that looks like when you're eight. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of kids do. You just, you know, you go tell adults that you want to be an artist. But as you get older, especially when you get to college, you realize that you really need to pick a more fine-tuned traje trajectory for that um, and I know not that we had a whole lot of art students at Vanderbilt but a lot of them would go into medical illustration just because that was a good duo with the rest of the subjects you could study at Vanderbilt um, and a lot of them went into digital art too so things like animation studios video games things like that that are really becoming a lot more popular in this day and age um, so it was really hard to kind of figure out where I fit into that because I didn't want to go down either of those routes. But my love for art history kept coming up again and again. And so I really like to see how I can sort of blend historical art as well as current contemporary art and see, you know, as an artist what I can do with that. But then also now as a curator, like what I can do with all the information that I know from that. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up 
a really good point. Um, I think we don't talk enough in institutions about what options there are as in terms of career choices for people that want to go into a creative field. Um, I didn't even know what a curator was graduating with my bachelor's, so you, you are <laughs> way farther along than I was. Um, but truly, I, I didn't, I've never heard that word before. I didn't know what that was. And I think that, in particular, there's a lot of museum jobs that um, aren't widely spoken of. <laughs> and, and I think people think that you need, you absolutely need a museum studies program in your institution to, to talk about those things. But I, I think we need to talk about those different career options in schools. Absolutely, yeah. When I was doing my undergrad program, um, a lot of my professors kind of implied that the only option after undergrad is to go to grad school and get mm-hmm. a master's in whatever specialization that you like to study in art history. And so when I told a couple of them that I still keep up with that I got a job as a curator to come here to Abingdon, they were kind of taken aback, like, oh, I guess you can do that. Like, you don't have to just keep studying and studying and stay in academia. You can go out in the world and apply your knowledge that you have and, you know, use that in the outside world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you feel like the nonprofit sector differs or is similar to academia in some ways? I think, oh, that's a great question. There are a lot of similarities and differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in one way academia teaches you that you have so many options of things you can do but then it comes down to doing research and Mm -hmm. a lot of the times you hit a roadblock and that's not always fun when you're so far down a research paper or speech that you're working on Um, working in a nonprofit can be pretty similar to where you have these really big ideas and you want to do a show or you want to give a talk or something and then you just hit a roadblock with resources so it's really I guess it just depends on what program you're in, what job you're at, and how many, you know, roadblocks that could possibly come up with those things. Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. The research component that I think you and I both offer when we, or that, that we both partake in when we create a shows, it's so much like writing my thesis <laughs> mm-hmm. all over again with each and every show, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much work and research and time goes into each and every exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I always say, too, here at the museum, we are a type of teacher. We are a type of, almost like a professor, you know, we're still doing that research that academic research, and but we apply it differently. We apply it to the gallery setting, and the gallery is where people learn. That is our classroom. Mm-hmm. That is how we engage the public. So yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but then a lot of differences as well. What would you say to parents that maybe discourage their children from getting a degree in the arts and I know this is something a lot of us have struggled (laughs) with and Mm -hmm. yeah I would say it's a really big deal to trust your child and I know especially my parents they did go to school for music they got music degrees Mm -hmm. Um, neither one of them has ever had a career in music unfortunately they've had to choose other um, 
ways to make a living. Um, right. And I think that did kind of scare them a little bit when they found out that I wasn't, you know, straying away from art anytime soon. But they definitely trusted me and they knew that that's what I wanted to do. And they knew that I was doing my best to sort of actually make a living off of that instead of just trying to live off of a hobby, you know? Mm-hmm. So for parents, I would just say trust your child. They're going to do the absolute best that they can if they want to stick with something creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that ends up not manifesting into a livelihood or a job, then they did their best and you can't be disappointed in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You are listening to WEHC 90.7 Emory, the voice of Southwest Virginia. I'm Leanne Hunter, and I'm going to break into the show you are currently listening to, Art Speaks, to talk to you about something really important. As a listener to WEHC, you know that we are in the middle of our spring fundraiser. You've heard us talk about it. You already know that listener support helps keep WEHC on the air by helping provide engineering support, programming costs, licensing fees, streaming fees, power bills, and other expenses. I think you also already know the value that WEHC brings to your life by providing you with Radio IQ, as well as programs that are locally produced. And that's why you listen, to stay informed, connected, and entertained. You may not realize that WEHC also provides a valuable learning environment to Emory and Henry College students who work at the station in a variety of professional roles. So with all that said, with everything you already know about WEHC, if you haven't done it yet, Please, go ahead and decide to become not only a listener, but a supporter of WEHC. Call 276-944-6593 or online at wehcfm.com, select Make a Gift, and designate WEHC Radio. Thank you very much, and now back to Art Speaks. This is Art Speaks, a program presented by the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. I am your host, Anna Buchanan, and I'm actually with one of our regular hosts today, Emily Jordan, the the curator of decorative and fine art. That's a mouthful. (laughs) And you're listening to WEHC on 90.7 FM. So... Emily, we get a lot of people in the museum that take a look at our art historical collections. They see the craft that is a vessel or a painting or an exquisite piece of furniture. In your opinion, why should people care about historical fine art? Yeah, that's another good question. I think since I am the, the um, curator of decorative art as well, I'm in charge of our cultural heritage collection and gallery. Um, and I think that's very important for this region of the South because um, at least myself growing up in the South, I was always taught that, you know, because we're, we're in the backwoods and we're sort of more of a conservative area that none of our creative um, manifestations really matter as much as places in the North or the West. So. I think it's super important that people who are from here or who just live here understand the history of this region. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been taught so often that you know our little pottery things and quilts and stuff aren't necessarily as important as paintings mm-hmm. and prints and things like that, um, especially ones that are you know more up north than the bigger museums in New York and places like that. But I think it's very important to understand the heritage of your region. 
Um, just because something served a functional purpose doesn't mean that it didn't have a lot of creativity put into it, mm-hmm. that it wasn't innovative for the time it was made, that it wasn't special. I think a lot of people just don't understand how special some of these objects are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's one of the very important aspects of our cultural heritage project is showing people of the region, also people who come to travel, that hey, we have a lot of cultural heritage, our ancestors here put a lot of work into this stuff, and it's really a representation of the culture, and I just don't Mm. think that always gets the representation that it needs in more national and international standards. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you think that um, craft is seen as as lesser than, like it's, it's less important? I think definitely, and you would also have a lot to say on that since you're also a curator of contemporary crafts, so you understand what people are making today in that regard, but I definitely think that, especially coming from an art history program in an undergrad school, that they didn't teach us almost anything about decorative art. They didn't teach Mm -hmm. us about craft. They didn't teach us about, you know, especially craft and decorative art in America, like maybe Mm -hmm. more ancient stuff where that was seen as more impressive for Mm -hmm. more primitive peoples to create, even though it wasn't. Mm -hmm. But um, that's just not something that's really taught in the fine art world, even though it definitely should be considered fine art. Mm -hmm. Um, It has just as much work put into it, just as much decoration, intricacy, and yet just because it was more functional, um, it's just not seen as fine art to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really, really unfortunate. I was I was always taught that, that even the word primitive it itself was um was a no no. Like and, and it but I was taught that later on as I as I went into graduate school. Um I think that even the word primitive itself can be demeaning and so when, when people say that it implies that the people of that time were not, oh, they could not be smart enough, surely, to make this, when they were so incredibly smart, and I think that a lot of that can go back to inherent beliefs and stereotypes that we have about people that came before us. Absolutely, and in classes that I took, um, and in past jobs and places like that, all of those things are labeled as folk art. And I think that is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a word that people have used to encompass too many things. Mm -hmm. I think there's a time and place to label something as folk art, but it was just such a tiny subsection of things that we would study or work with that were just not treated on the same level as other art. And so labeling something as folk art, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times just says that this artist was self-taught and didn't go to school, therefore their product that they created is not on the same level as the rest of this art that we have. And I think that that's sort of a horrible label to put on stuff like that. Absolutely. And I I think too, um, yeah, there's that belief that, oh, well, if they didn't go to school, then they are therefore not smart. And that's obviously false. Um, And I think it's another another stereotype that, or, or belief that, that people who create what is, what is labeled as a folk art, they don't create anything else. I'm thinking of a contemporary artist who we had in From These Hills recently by the name of Mike Owsley. Mike actually 
can and has created these large realistic paintings, but he chooses to paint in the style of what we think of when we think of folk art. And that's his choice. He's making that stylistic choice to to further appreciate and get others to appreciate what we have here in Appalachia. Um, and I think that that's really, really special because obviously we're not... We're, we're not a primitive people here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like we were talking about in the car yesterday, you know, people are like, oh, you're from the South. Why are you wearing shoes? And yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, we have shoes here. <laughs> we do use that stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think there's still some stereotyping mm-hmm. when it comes to art, especially Absolutely. Appalachian. Art. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and that artist that you mentioned, I think people would label that as a regression of style. Mm. If you're going to specifically choose mm-hmm. to paint in a quote-unquote folk art style, um, which is absolutely not true. I think even if we look at art history and you look at Picasso, not that mm-hmm. Picasso needs a whole lot of praise, but mm-hmm. he went from being a teenager and painting these beautifully intricate scenes and then people would say that he regressed and he became more abstract and he used his own style and took styles from other influences and a lot of people see that as a shame that he went from so so talented to such a regressed abstract artist that no one could understand and I think that sort of removing yourself from the boundaries of quote-unquote fine art and doing your own thing and sort of using um different regional styles that aren't necessarily fine western art that the world often likes to praise I think a lot of people see that as a regression of style instead of you know unplugging yourself from unnecessary boundaries Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is a local artist and actually he um, has a studio here at William King Eric Drummond Smith and he once told me that the camera freed us as artists because it freed us from having to strictly create realism or, re- or mm. realistic drawings or paintings or or what have you. So I don't know what what would you say about that? That the camera freed us. I think that's absolutely a good point. I don't think. That was, you know, necessarily the one factor that sort of right, turned right. modern art into abstraction, but that that is a good point to make. In history, a lot of the time, fine art was used as a documentation process. So when you have portraits of royals and merchants and wealthy people, you know, nowadays you can just take a picture of Queen Elizabeth and no <laughs> one necessarily needs to paint her oil portrait. Um, but I think also that coincided with sort of... Um, the collapse of industrialization and World mm. War One and World War Two and how that sort of affected the psyche of a lot of artists and how realism wasn't really an option anymore. Mm-hmm. It's almost like with the chaos came a different way to cope through mm. art, a cathartic method of, of creation. Mm-hmm. What's going on in the mind and, as you mentioned, the psyche. Mm-hmm. So... Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. We are so happy to have you here at William King Museum of Art. 
and I absolutely look forward to working with you. And I'm sure WEHC looks forward to having you as a host on this show. And this is just a reminder that WEHC is having a fall fundraiser. Their goal is $50,000. If you would like to donate to WEHC's fall fundraiser, you can call for pledges at 276-944-6593. Or you can go online at www.wehcfm.com and select Make a Gift. And this is also a reminder, folks, that William King Museum of Art is still looking for vendors for our Open Road Bike Fest. There are still some spots available if you are interested in being a vendor for the Open Road Bike Fest, hosted by William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia, at Latcher Field on June 25th. Please go on to the William King Museum of Art's website, williamkingmuseum.org, and contact our director of annual fund, Nikki Hicks. That's all the time we have for today, folks, so I'll see you next time on Art Speaks.